I was working with the uh, sixth grader. So they had, the sixth graders were tutoring the younger kids mm -hmm. in math and reading. And so it was a music period. So I had to miss music because I didn't do well on the math, on this math test. And this girl's name was Robin. I won't forget that either. It's funny. I was saying, Adrian, just, just listen to me. Just listen to me. And she kept saying, just, just. And she would go through this equation or whatever it was that she was, it wasn't even, a, it, was, it must have been addition or subtraction or something very basic. I wasn't getting it. Whatever she was trying to tell me, I just wasn't getting it. And the only thing I could think about was missing music class because it, they were singing my favorite songs and everybody was there and here I was stuck. And, and I knew I wasn't going to get what she was saying. And it, it, that was where it was in that moment in time when I thought, oh, wow, there's something wrong here. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. In this first part of a two-part episode, we meet corporate performance expert and experience shaper, Adrian Schock. She turned difficult early life challenges into an extraordinary ability to see things outside of the norm, to understand how our mind-body connections work, and apply her unusual insight towards creating better work engagements and outcomes for her clients. Part one covers Shock's early life learning challenges, how competitive team swimming shaped her inclusive business practices, her bold relocation to Paris when she spoke very little French, and a discussion of the important concept of systems thinking that she applies in her work with clients. We spoke with Adrian Shock in July 2018. So Adrian Schock, welcome to the tightrope. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. Tell us about yourself, your education and your background. Sure, well I am originally from Colorado Springs, Colorado and I moved to uh, Southern Maryland, Southern Prince George's County when I was in elementary school and uh, went to middle school, high school in uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, and went on to uh, Towson State, which is now Towson University, in Towson, Maryland, just north of Baltimore. And then post-graduate, um, post after I graduated from Towson, I decided I wanted to learn how to speak French, so I moved to France and studied at the Sorbonne um, and have done lots of continuing education just from, from the very beginning in all sorts of um, places and context from massage therapy. I went on to study massage therapy and become a massage therapist in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I also have done continuing education with American University um, and so on. So studied presence-based coaching with Doug Silsby in Asheville. So you, you're a woman of many interests. Mm. But what was the first interest? When you were a little kid, do you recall what your first, I, what I want to be when I grow up dream happened to be? Mm. I, I never had one of those moments, but I did have a moment when my mom told me, and I don't remember how old I was. She said, you know, you're going to have to work for yourself. You are going to find your way outside of what everybody else is doing. And I've never forgotten that. That was profound, and um, just in terms of how I've thought about my future and, and where I go in my path, 
I've always followed the energy. So where I was meeting people that I was connecting with, made me feel good, that's what, that's what drove my, my curiosity or my interest in, in working together more than I had a specific place and a moment in time that I was focused on. So why did mom say to you, you're going to have to work for yourself? That's interesting. That, you know, that's a good question that I never asked. I've always seen things outside of the norm. I've always questioned, why are we doing things like this? This doesn't make sense. Always had a lot of ideas that I offer. <laughs> a lot of them, you know, don't always land well, but I've, I'm very curious and always find ways to do things differently. And it's not always easy when we live in a society or work in organizations where they're really focused on a norm. So early on, were you a process inventor? Were you trying to fix situations that you thought weren't working? I think it was not necessarily a process fixer. It was just somebody who was really curious um, about why are we doing it like this? Um, having an idea, but not, not really focused on, hey, this is my idea and we need to do it like this or else, but just noticing, you know, there's another way that we could look at this. And if it, if it was something that somebody wanted to explore, great. And if it was something that someone didn't want to explore, that's okay too. It sounds like as a, as a person of a young age, you were, you were abstract when a lot of kids were probably concrete in their thinking. Right. Well, um, I'm dyslexic and okay. I am, I went through school. I had a tough time in school. I did not test well. Mm -hmm. I did not write well, but I always could conceptualize what's the message. And I could always explain it in the next day or I would find ways to get out of taking tests where I'd have to go to my teachers and say, look, I know I just failed this test, but I actually know this and we can have a conversation about it, but I'm not going to show up well in these tests. And that was my entire academic career of having these conversations with teachers to say, I've got this, we can have a conversation about it, but what you're asking me to do is not going to give you any reflection of how well I, I know or don't know this material. I could understand doing that as an older person mm -hmm. because you're, you're aware of your own stylistic differences. But when you're a five or a six or a seven-year-old kid and you don't test well in first grade, that's got to be traumatic. Right. Well, I wasn't having those conversations in the first grade, but I can tell you I can go back to a very specific moment in time in the first grade where I knew that there was something wrong. Can you describe it? It was when I was working with the, um, it was a very interesting experience. I was working with the uh, sixth grader. So they had, the sixth graders were tutoring the younger kids mm -hmm. in math and reading. And so it was a music period. So I had to miss music because I didn't do well on the math, on this math test. And this girl's name was Robin. I won't forget that either. It's funny. Was saying, Adrian, just, just listen to me just listen to me and she kept saying just just and she would go through this equation or whatever it was that she was it wasn't even a, it was it must have been addition or subtraction or something very basic I wasn't getting it whatever she was trying to tell me I just wasn't getting it and the only thing I could think about was missing music class because it, they were singing my favorite songs and everybody was there and here I was stuck and and I knew I wasn't going to get what she was saying and it, it, that was where it was in that moment in time when I thought oh wow there's something wrong here and that's all I thought. 
that's all I can remember. What'd you do with that? Did you go to mom and say, hey, it's not working or? No, I went, no, I, I, I think that after probably in middle school, my report cards were just very, very mediocre. Uh-huh. And I always knew that I was smarter than everybody else, which is a crazy thing to say. But I knew that I could see things and experience things in very different ways than my classmates. And, and my mom would always say to me, just, it's time to go to school. She'd just say, just have fun. Just go enjoy it. See you when you get home. And that was it. I never had any drama over report cards. I never had any drama. I didn't have any drama about my grades or anything. And I don't even know if my parents actually knew that there was something wrong. I think that they knew that in order to support me and my interest in going to school, they would be as positive as they could. But look at what they did for you. They gave you permission to have fun. Yeah. (laughs) And that must have taken a lot of pressure off. You're obviously a dual exceptional child. Well. You had things that <laughs> that you didn't couldn't do conventionally, but you did some things quite exceptionally. Right. So that's dual exceptionality. And a lot of kids are like that. So you're probably a gifted kid and didn't know it. Bob, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. That that could be. And um I, I think that I, I think that my parents probably knew that if they were gonna push me, it would not work out well. So because your parents gave you permission to have fun, um, did that ease the pushback you got from conventional thinkers like teachers and guidance counselors? Did it make it easier for oh, you? Oh, absolutely. I knew that they didn't get it. I knew it. And, and what's also quite interesting is I was a competitive swimmer for many years and I knew that the way I was coached for, at swimming, so I was a, a highly competitive swimmer. I competed in the Junior Olympics. Oh, wow. Um, and I knew that what my coaches were doing with me in swimming was nothing like teachers or managers or anybody in, um, in a supervisory position that knows how to inspire some kind of motivation and inspire some kind of performance. So when I was younger, I knew that my coaches got me mm-hmm. and inspired me in order to do things that were constantly better than what I was doing. And my teachers at school didn't. I bet your swim coaches had learning differences as well that they had to overcome. Could be. My daughter's swim coaches were like that. Mm. And my daughter is still exceptional. Yeah, I think that the way we look at Coaching, whether it's um, athletic coaching or executive coaching or, you know, lifestyle coaching or whatever the case may be, there is a, and academia, and I work, I'm currently working um, with Salisbury University, so I am involved in academia Mm -hmm. and, um, and working with kids who want to experience and learn in in many different ways. So, yeah, I've I've seen some really interesting, I've looked at performance and I've looked at evaluation through many different lenses, how it applies to me and how it applies to those who've worked for me or those that I'm coaching or, you know, in various capacities. So how did athleticism in general and swimming in particular help you learn the world, discover the world and figure out where you needed to go in life? Interesting. Great question and a tough one to answer. 
I think that swimming is a very unique sport because it is an individual sport and it's a team sport. In order to coach a team that is both individual mm -hmm. and team, that the kind of coach that you have coaching a, a swimming organization is probably going to look very different than a rugby coach or a track and field coach. They're, they're looking at very different kinds of performance. But the one thing that was very, very clear to me, and my, my favorite coach was my coach at Port Washington Swim Team, which was this little mm. tiny swimming pool in Southern Maryland. And this guy was very clear that every single kid on that team had a job, every one of them. And if you, if you know anything about swim teams, which mm -hmm. you do, mm -hmm. these, these meets are long and boring. And I mean, it could, it could mm -hmm. be, it could be just awful, but it didn't matter if your job was to win your event because a lot of the kids, they, they weren't going to win. They weren't going to win first place, but they had other jobs that were equally important, whether it's their job was to place or their job was to make sure that that team is cheering or that their job is to make sure that, oh, we know that the eight and unders are, are coming up and we gotta be really supportive, or they need to, some kids need to make sure, okay, where's the water? Where's, you know, everyone had a way of contributing and um, being relied on. And I believe that when, and that was Dane, uh, Dane Barnhart, who's mm. now in Hawaii. And, and Dane, on my swim team, there were two Olympic, one Olympic gold medalist, Mark Henderson, and Elisa Hess, who swam for um, New Zealand. But we were all, you know, this was when I was in elementary school. I mean, this guy got it. And at the end of every race, he was there to just give, okay, this is what I see, this is what we saw. This is what, you know, what I think you should look at differently next time. And how are you gonna do it? Having a job, I think, you just articulated it. That that was your unique value proposition. That's what made you integral to the team. Right, right. And 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 again, it wasn't this linear of you know, the the job is to, you know, it wasn't about the end result per se. It was really about this contribution. And I think having that ease and that ability to kind of go inside yourself to say, oh, okay, I'm welcomed. I am, um, I'm connected. I'm respected and I'm safe in this environment, in this team, I can, I can, I can shine. I can, I can say what I want. I can do what I want in, in the spirit of contribution. And, and I, it makes a big difference. I, I think when people don't know, why am I here? I'm just waiting, you know, I'm wasting all this time between events and, you know, I, you know that didn't happen. I was just doing what was fun. <laughs> So let's run with the fun aspect. We'll take, that, we'll take that as a narrative. So you graduate college, you go to the Sorbonne, you study French. Mm. There was every expectation that I was going to get a job and you know, do what everyone does when they graduate from college. I, um, so I grew up without a, a lot of money and right. I had a partial scholarship. I had to graduate in four years and I had um, a major and a minor in you know, business. So majored in, at the time it was business administration with a minor in marketing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I always wanted to study French and there wasn't any room to, I, I couldn't do that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't graduate in four years and I didn't have enough money. So, um, I was walking from school back to my apartment and I thought as I'm walking back, I thought, 
you know what, I'm just going to move to France and I'm just going to learn how to speak French because this is crazy. I'm not going to regret this. And I, rem I remember telling my parents, I'm moving to France. How'd that go over? And they're like, you missed the boat. You don't know anybody in France. You're not going to France. <laughs> I was like, yes, I am. And um, so I ended up buying a one-way ticket on People's Express Airlines oh, for yes. $99 one way. And I was like, yes. And I bought my, um, I bought my ticket, and I worked day and night for from May until October waitressing, bartending, catering, just making as much money as I possibly could so that on the date of my flight, mm. I would have enough money to get on a plane and go figure it out. And so I didn't end up going to school until January. So I arrived in October mm. and I did things like I was an au pair, I sold flowers on the street, I worked in kitchens. It, was, I wasn't, it wasn't legal and it wasn't a, a process, but when I got there, I was able to apply and get into the, the Sorbonne just um, when I was already there and I was working as a, an au pair for a while. How much French did you speak? I didn't speak any French. How did you do it? I just, you know, who knows? I, it, it was, it was uh, a- you must, have, you must have exuded incredible self-confidence that people no, would just buy flowers I, from you. I, I, have, um, I have this firm belief, you know, there are a couple of things that, uh, a couple of mottos that have taken me through my life. And one was, um, don't tell me I can't do it until I've already done it. Uh, and the other one is ignorance is bliss. Yes. It, oh, yes. yes. It is what we do when we are not afraid is anything. But when we start to get, you know, the fear factor playing out, it's the, that's when we start backing away from from what we wanted to do. And, and it was interesting because when I went there, I didn't know that they had strikes and all that. And oh. I got there. I, w I arrived in Brussels, and I was going to take a train into Paris. And there was an international train strike. Oh, my goodness. And I didn't, I wasn't planning. I, you know, I was going to go right to a youth hostel and just kind of get myself together. So nothing really went planned. But there was a guy on, in, in my little train. I ended up getting into Paris on Friday evening, which is, was not my plan. Mm -hmm. And it was Gerdinau, which is the northern train station, not a good place to be on a Friday night by yourself. Mm -hmm. And this guy in, in my car who was talking to me said, listen, I really appreciate whatever he said. I appreciate what you're doing. But if you need any help, and he gave me his card, he said, you have to know somebody here in case you get into trouble. I'm sure this guy had a daughter. I was, I was, I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'll never forget that guy. I never called him. I have no idea who he was, but I'll never forget that that guy reached out to me and said, hey, if you get yourself in a pinch, so I've never forgotten that. So you learned how to speak French. Well, I spoke pretty well when I was there. I haven't been practicing for years, right. but I, can, I will say that some of my best friends today I met there. Talk to us about your pivot into the work world. Mm. Did that happen first in Europe? No. So when I came back, I ran out of money ah. and I came back and I thought, okay, I have to get a job. So I got a job in a, I was doing, I was selling a, a courier service. It was a same day courier service. And basically I got, I got a job that I got the job that I, I just needed to get a job and I got lucky. I have no idea how I got this job. Um, but I, it was in sales. It was, it was, um, before like FedEx, like kind of became mainstream. It's right when facsimiles were coming. So there was some business and I had, um, 
my job was to just build a, a client base. It was also my first experiences with sexual harassment. It was predominantly men. Mm. And they weren't used to um, a young woman, you know, going head to head. So I did this selling for a little while. And then I decided I don't want to do this. And I thought, I want to be a massage therapist. And oh. I want to work with athletes. And so I decided I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go back to Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to study massage therapy. And I'm going to work with the Olympic Training Center. And I'm going to, I'm going to work with athletes. And I'm going to be outside. And I'm going to do all the things that I want to do. And the Olympic Training Center is in Colorado Springs, if right, I recall. Right, right. So but the massage therapy school had... Um, programs where we were interning with them and we were working with different teams and it was it was really cool so what was that like it was just fabulous it was fabulous um i i've always been really interested in the human body and performance from a you know a physical perspective and it was you know even to this day it, more so now than ever there's no reason that every kid is not learning anatomy and physiology at a very young age. If What I learned about the body and the way we treat the body and how we nourish the body, how we rest the body, I learned a lot of that through my swimming. But then when I went back to study massage therapy, I learned, I learned even more of what it takes to make this, this machine perform well. And... Um, it, it um, not only did I learn about the body, but I, that's where I learned systems thinking. So when I, after I practiced massage therapy, and when I went into um, an organizational context outside of athletics, um, it was very easy for me to understand systems. And you know, if we focus our attention or we do something to one part of the organization, there's going to be an impact on another part of the organization. So. I didn't learn that through, you know, OD masters programs or anything. I learned that in massage therapy school. So that was that whole experience was incredible. It was, you know, working with the National Taekwondo team, the wrestling team. We had people, we had uh, teams from all over the world, bike teams that would come and practice in and around Manitou Springs because there was a lot of hill work, um, and you know, we worked with these cyclists, and it was just magnificent I, I loved it so talk to us about systems thinking what is that if you have to describe to somebody who's never heard the term before so so when when i when i describe systems thinking i describe it in a way that when we imagine just a system a body mm -hmm. has many many parts we have mm -hmm. our head we have our heart we have our arms shoulders legs all of this is in service of our showing up in the world in an organization, you have sales, you have engineering, you have, you know, programs. These functions all work together in order for this, this organization to perform well. So when we look at a system, there are individual systems, like the brain or the heart, the shoulders, whatever. When they're working together, when they're in sync, when they're healthy, they can do ex your body can do extraordinary things. When they're not working together, you don't show up in the same capacity. But when you look at solving a problem in a, in a system, you can't just look at the one small piece of, you know, if my back hurts, okay, I can't just look at my back. I have to look at my hips. I have to look at my shoulders. I have to look at 
I have to look at everything because there might be something contributing to that. Or if I've got a problem with my knee, I'm not going to just look at my knee. I'm going to look at how am I walking, how am I you know, dissipating momentum when I'm walking. I'm doing all kinds of things to look at this big picture. And I think in the world of specialists, and there's nothing wrong with specialists, because when we pretty much laser focus on something, we, we can see that in a very powerful way. But what we don't see is all of the things that are happening around it that are in service of it performing. Um, I'm a big fan of acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine where they don't look at any organ in the body by itself. They, they, it's just not, it's not how it works. So I think that also speaks to my interest in systems thinking. It's, okay, take a look at the problem and then just expand that. And how much of the problem is people? Well, it's sometimes it's, you know, often it's people, sometimes it's process, mm. sometimes it's structure. You know, if you've got a, in an organizational context, if, you, if the organization is not structured well, people, you know, structure breeds behavior. So. How much time transpired before you decided to go off on your own and, and start your own consulting practice? Well, I had a lot between massage therapy and starting my own consulting practice. So after I um, was doing massage therapy in Colorado, I moved back to Maryland and found that it was illegal for men to work on women and women to work on men. And so I did do a lot of lobbying and change laws. And then from there, um, I ended up meeting my husband at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was in the process of moving to Europe. Um, he had won a large piece of work with a Dutch phone company, and it was a matter of, is he going to quit his job and stay here, or am I going to dissolve my practice and go with him? And I said, I'll go with you if you make sure that I have a full-time job, because I'm not going to go unless I work. And so, lucky enough, this was during telecom, so there weren't enough resources in the world to do the amount of work that was required in the early and mid-90s with the deregulation of the phone companies in mm -hmm. Europe and so mm -hmm. on. So they hired me, and we grew this project from seven people to 750 people in two years. It expanded from uh, a project with the Dutch to a, a project with the Dutch, the Swedes, and the Swiss. They had to create a consortium, and we had to build this customer care billing system that was in support of three separate countries. It was incredibly complex, mm -hmm. the most fascinating hard work I've ever done in my life. And that gave me a great view on, you know, what is it like to work inside a, um, a multinational organization that's matrixed. And I didn't know what any of this stuff was, but all these people would just show up. When my, part of my work was HR, which I didn't know what HR stood for. <laughs> when I took the job, I was like, yes, I can absolutely do that. I had no idea what it meant. You know, the fact that you didn't have all this experience, I wonder if it was a benefit. I, I think- No doubt, there's no doubt. Yeah. I think that people who are highly specialized, you talked about healthcare practitioners who are highly specialized, they know their area within the body and they know it really well, mm -hmm. but they aren't necessarily sensitive to all the outside Contributing or independent factors. variables that go on sure. that cause that back to go out of whack. Right, right. And, th and that's just how we're trained. Mm -hmm. That's how we're trained. I mean, when we look at organizational... Um, results. You know, you're looking at what's the bottom line. Right. You're not looking at all of these contributing factors in, in many cases, not always. How did it feel to have that as the measuring stick, the, the financial bottom line, when you're feeling all this other energy 
that pushes other levels that aren't necessarily financial bottom line. It might be a well-being bottom line or a mm -hmm. social conscience bottom line. How does that feel? Well, it, it has been abundantly clear for many, many years that we do not look at performance holistically. Mm -hmm. And when I say holistic, I mean um, the brain, the body, the heart, the spirit, the soul. There is, there are many elements to the way we show up and to manage people. And again, this is this challenge for my swimming career up until now. You cannot manage performance by just dealing with the brain. It doesn't work like that because our body has as much intelligence as our brain. Our body is what experiences the world before our brain is actually processing it. So moving into the space of, of performance, I, I started to notice this very clearly in the 2008, 2007 to 2009. I was, I was thinking there's something missing here. And I read a book called Your Brain at Work by David Rock. And mm. I read a book called um, uh, Positive Leadership for Extraordinary Performance by Kim Cameron. And that opened my eyes to, okay, we've got to look at how we're getting in the way of ourselves in, in the world. So what happens when we get stressed at work? What happens to our performance? Um, what happens when we are feeling disrespected or lack of connection or we don't feel safe? our productivity changes, it, it diminish. You bring up a very interesting time frame. So 2007, the final quarter of 2007, I used to be a recruiter. Mm. And I was like the canary in the coal mine. When things started to go bad on the work front, I was the first to feel it. That's when um, my clients would start pulling back their wrecks. And uh, there was a week in December where all the window shades rolled up simultaneously. Yeah. And then we got into the Great Recession of 2008, and then the big financial crisis in the middle of September 2008. And then we went through a very prolonged period that we were told was just a one-year recession, but unfortunately for people, became many years long. Mm. And I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm, and I'm thinking about all those people who they did what they were told to do at work. They were worker bees. They, they were called human capital. I hate the term human mm. capital. It just makes my hair stand on end. Because it, <laughs> and reflecting on your own experience, it doesn't deal with the fact that we're all sentient beings. We have feelings. Mm. We want to be a part of something. We want to feel like we're belonging. We want to feel like we are, we're moving the needle in the positive direction. And to how we started this session, that there's some semblance of fun, mm. that there's something keeping you at work beyond the paycheck and the health insurance coverage. So as we went into that time frame, how did you see this new awakening that you had? What was the most interesting piece of data that I, I started to, I, I think it was in 2007, late 2007, before the, the big hit, I saw an uptick in request for coaching that was mind-blowing and because I, I i track i track you know i, I would do a, a bian, uh, biannual uh, learning needs assessment so we would look at okay what's trending what do we what do we need to anticipate for skills and competencies moving forward what do we need to start to let go of and i was and when i was looking at it i was saying we have a, pro a problem with managers 
our managers are not managing their people because their people are asking for coaches. So we need to take a look at what's going on with managers today um, because not everybody's going to get a coach. Um, and that's when I, that was the one piece of data that, that struck me that I started to pay attention to. There's something missing. And then from that, I mean, these were extraordinarily smart people that I was working with. I've worked with engineers for many, many years. Mm-hmm. I mean, Talis Group is an extraordinary company. I mean, they crank out Nobel Peace Prize winners. And there was an issue with meeting deadlines. And there, and I was thinking, you know, we've got the best in class learning and development. What is happening? What is happening? Why is there this interfunction fighting, which we see, I see in organizations all the time. You know, sales is fighting with programs, programs is fighting with engineering. I mean, it's, 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 it's a system that needs to be integrated and, and well-oiled so they can perform well. But I, I started to sense this sort of stress, this uptick in stress mm. that was getting in the way of relationships, um, was people were rushing. Uh, and, and what's very clear is that if you, when you start to rush and you start to experience a sense of urgency, yeah. that's part of a stress response. So right. you can do that, but you might see some other behaviors show up that are not as helpful. So you got to weigh, you know, what do we want to be paying attention to? But that was the beginning of, okay, we need to start looking at what we're doing here and look at what are these external factors that are impacting performance that are outside of the normal day-to-day learning and development. And so that's when I learned about, um, or I started to integrate positive language. Next time on the Tightrope Podcast, part two of our conversation with corporate performance expert and experience shaper, Adrian Schock, continues with a critical discussion of what is wrong with the way we evaluate performance on the job. It was across the country in probably 12 different cities, about 500 people. And I would ask a question, how many of you have had a transformative performance evaluation in your career, in any capacity? Hmm. And three people in the course of six weeks, 500 people, three people had had experienced a transformative conversation. Through her company, 5 to 1 Consulting, Shock offers a different kind of performance review process that she says leads to better results and happier, more satisfied talent. You won't want to miss part two. Links to her website are available on our website at dansmolin.com. Check out our past episodes on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener Denise who writes that the episode resonated with me on many levels. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Denise. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list and please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmullen.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin, and do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone.